All right. Sweet morning so far. Grab your Bibles. If you didn't bring your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, you have one now that's blue sitting in that seat back in front of you. You can take that and keep that. For real. Turn to John chapter 14. Actually, yeah, we're going to start in John chapter 13 today. Give you a heads up too, if you're here for the first time or first of a few times, you're going to need your Bible a lot this morning. We, we try not to share a bunch of opinion and funny stories and emails and things like that because those aren't life-changing, but the Word is powerful and alive and cuts and shapes and changes, so that's where we're going this morning is to the Word. Beginning in chapter 13, I'm going to read a big chunk, actually, chapter 13 and chapter 14 up to verse 18. And what I want you to do in this next couple of minutes is just really be intentional about jettisoning all the stuff that we bring to corporate worship. All the problems, if you have money issues, which a lot of people have right now, just put those aside. I mean, just be real intentional about saying, okay, for the next few minutes, I'm not going to care about any of that stuff. If you have friendship issues, family issues, just put all of it aside for the next few minutes. This promise of encouragement that the Lord gave his followers to come if you're heavy laden and weary and he will give you rest, he says, I will teach you. Come learn from me. So the good medicine that we need in these next few minutes is to learn something. So I encourage you to put all this aside and just immerse yourself with me in this story. Okay. It really unfolded for us over the course of months and probably over the course of a couple of years maybe by this point. Maybe not a couple of years, but chapter 13 and chapter 14 to where we're going. But this really unfolded in a matter of minutes. This was on the night before Christ was crucified. On the eve. It all unfolded in one setting in the upper room. So let's step into the upper room. If you need to grab a disciple, be one for the next few minutes. Just take in the drama of these next few minutes. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going back to God, this Jesus, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered him, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, or into him, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew what he, why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, uh, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. This context, in these next few minutes, we're going to spend some time unpacking three things that come from this story and this whole context that I had to read. In this context, I want you to see, first of all, God the Son. First of all, he's showing what kind of servant he is, what kind of God he is. He is, in fact, a servant. This kingdom that he is Lord over is a different sort of kingdom. It's the sort of kingdom where the first is last and the last is first. It's the sort of kingdom where the Lord of this kingdom washes feet, rides a donkey's colt. This is a very different kingdom altogether. And in this context, our Lord is troubled over the betrayal of one of his followers. We also know that he's troubled over the painful hour that's in store, the difficult hours of the cross. And yet, in that context, when he knows where he's going and he knows what's about to happen to him, he's ministering to his followers. He's ministering to them, not with a foot rub, although there was a foot washing, not with a back scratching, but with truth. He's teaching them. He's ministering to them with truth. Then there's his troubled followers, a bunch of common men, fishermen, tax collectors. These guys, you got to climb into their story for us to really get this. They left everything. A fishing boat may not be much, just like a work truck may not be much, but if you walk away from it, you're leaving your profession. You're leaving your livelihood. You may be leaving your family, all your friends, internet access. You're leaving all those comforts, all those things that you typically say you need and you're going to follow this Christ. That's what these guys have done. A bunch of common men left everything to follow him, and now he's telling them that he's going to a place where they can't follow him. That would be troubling. And he's telling committed people, men like Peter, this bulldog linebacker who jumps off sides oftentimes, they're telling him, he's telling him, you know what? You say you're going to follow me wherever, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. They've also had one of their own that they've walked with for three years, a close brother, likely the most trusted among them, the one who kept the money bags leave the table in what Christ has described as betrayal. This is a troubling hour for these men. And it's in this context where God the Son is ministering to a bunch of troubled followers that he makes in this promise, I will not leave you as orphans. Seemed like a small statement, but we need to climb into the Old Testament, New Testament context for what an orphan actually is. An orphan, we automatically, when we think of an orphan, we probably go to someone who doesn't have a father or mother. In this context, it was somebody that lost their father. 
When an orphan lost their father, they lost two things that are so important. And one is provision, and the other is protection. When a kid lost his father, he lost provision and protection. And it's in this troubling hour that God the Son makes the promise to his closest followers that they would not be left fatherless. They would not be left without protection and provision. The timing and the placement of this passage in the life of our church is no coincidence. We were talking about it as elders earlier on this week. I was planning on preaching a different sermon this morning. I actually had a sermon that I was going to be preaching from Ephesians, a standalone sermon. In fact, I spent the entire week working on it up until about 3.30 on Thursday afternoon when I'm usually kind of putting the finishing touches on things. And God said, now, switcheroo, the divine switcheroo. I want you to preach on this passage, this next passage in John, just as if you would have. Okay, so I've had a busy couple of days immersing myself into this one passage and recognizing it's God's timing and God's ordained timing, in fact, that we are engaging this as a people, as a family is working on gathering the funds to adopt, as some of you are still changing the diapers on children's, the children that you've just adopted, that this too shall pass. <laughs> Not a pun, play on words intended. No pun intended. If someone tried to orchestrate where we would be in God's Word right now, at this moment, they couldn't have done it. Six years ago, we started on the book of John. And look where we're sitting and standing right now. The life of this church. You just see God's fingerprints all over it. So we're going to engage in the next few minutes three things from this passage. Really, three things from this context. That's why I needed to read that big scope that unfolded over the course of a few minutes. Because we're going to be drawing some things that are going to help us understand Adoption. First of all, the first thing I want you to get this morning is that God loves the little children and especially orphan children. God loves the little children and especially orphaned children. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. I'll give you page numbers for your ESV or your Pewback Bible, the one that's uh, right in front of you, the blue one. Or if you have a typical ESV Bible, this page number will work as well, page 823. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? These guys are infatuated with trying to figure out who's going to be first and greatest. Weren't they just vying for this? You know, the moms, of sons of Zebedee's mom are competing for that. Which one's going to be sitting at his right and his left? So who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You can almost see these guys. And calling to him a child, a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like, that being key, like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. When the Lord is asked this question about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God, he pulls a child in front of him, and he sets him up as the model for belief. And in what unfolds after that about if you cause one of these little dudes or dudettes to sin, you can have a millstone put around your neck and thrown into the sea and sink like a rock. 
You hear this special protection and provision for the life of a child. Look over chapter 19, the next page. Chapter 19, verse 13. It says, Then children were brought to him that he may lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. Ah, get these little ones out of here. They're such a nuisance. Where's the greatest in the kingdom? They already forgotten what he just said. Get those little rascals out of here. And Jesus said to him, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such, to the childlike, to those who are like these little dudes and dudettes, belongs the kingdom of heaven. To such, the childlike, belongs the kingdom of heaven. Flip back to Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus has just been speaking on judgment. You may even look at your little heading there. It says, woe to unrepentant cities. He's speaking about this imminent reality in store for those who are unrepentant. In verse 25, he says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, these judgment things, from the wise and understanding. He's being facetious. From the wise and understanding and revealed them to, yes, little children. These great things. He's thanking the Father that these great things have been hidden from the supposed wise and understanding and revealed to little children. At this point, it's clearly becoming metaphorical. He has a special affection for children because children represent something. Now, turn back to John. I want to show you where I've been going in this. John chapter 13, a passage that we just read this morning. Remember this context. Grab that disciple that you were a few minutes ago as you climbed into this story. And hear these words from the Lord that you followed for the last three years. John chapter 13, verse 33. I'll start in verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. He's thinking of the cross. And God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him in in himself and glorify him at once. Listen, now receive these two words. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. He's speaking to grown men, former fishermen, former tax collectors, these guys who held down jobs, manned their fishing boats, hauled in the the nets. These guys who've walked with him for three years, he's speaking to them and calling them little children. He's reflecting the mind of God in this context. And he's making them this promise just moments later, I'm not going to leave you orphans, little children. God has a special love for children and especially orphaned children. He's speaking to them and seems to have a view of them and where their, what their status is relative God. Are they little children chronologically? No. Man, they've manned the fishing boats. But in the eyes of God, they're little children. And he's saying to them, I will not leave you if you are dependent, if you are trusting, if you are clingy, if you are humble like a little child, I will not leave you fatherless. I will not leave you without protection. I will not leave you without provision. I will not leave you as orphans. It's a great opportunity to enjoy the godness of Jesus because he just sounds like the Father. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. I'll give you a page number. Page 702. I'm so thankful that we have the rest of our Bibles and that we don't just live in the New Testament because the Old Testament just explains so much. It helps us understand what God is doing, what God is about. 
helps us understand salvation. I don't really know that you have any sense of what God has done and is doing without, the, without our Old Testament. Ezekiel, this dusty book, was written about 500 years or so before Christ. The nation of Israel was in captivity in Babylon at this point. They, about 500 years earlier, had King Saul and King David. And in that 500-year period between King Saul and King David, and this point where they're in Babylon, where Ezekiel is prophesying, basically they've ridden the roller coaster of good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king. If you read First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles, First Second Kings, you know what I'm talking about. Good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king. And God says, "Okay, you guys have lived basically for 500 years like whores." A strong language, but it's the language that he uses. You've lived like whores, so you're going into bondage in Babylon. And Ezekiel is writing about what's been done for Israel. These are words from God. Listen to these words from God about what God did for Israel, and you're going to piece this whole thing together. Listen. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. And this is what God said to Ezekiel. He said, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem, that's shorthand for Israel, her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. He's basically saying, you guys are Heinz 57. You guys are like a bunch of mutts. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. You were, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt. Those of you who work in the delivery clinic, I hope you wouldn't do that to a baby, but maybe they did it in this context. Rubbed them with salt when they were born. Nor were you wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you, Israel, to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Not even tended to. They didn't even cut the umbilical cord. It's still just attached to the placenta. Throw it out there in the field. Baby, placenta, blood, all. Who cares? Fatherless, forgotten, no protection, no provision. That was you, Israel. And when I passed you by, God says, I saw you wallowing in your blood. And I said to you in your blood, live. That's what he said to Jeremy Kieschnick on June the 18th. I saw you in your blood and I said, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed you by again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, Israel, and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. The way Jesus is speaking to his followers, calling them little, little children and saying, I will not leave you as orphans, is just reflecting his godness. He sounds just like the father who has done this with Israel. The vivid imagery of Israel is right there in Ezekiel chapter 16. He says to Israel, essentially, you were a mutt. You were homely. You were bloody. You were forgotten. Your umbilical cord wasn't even cut. But I did not leave you fatherless. 
And that's what Jesus is promising right here. I will not leave you fatherless. This is the amazing, scandalous character of our God. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 now. Page 976. It starts over at the New Testament, I think. So if your pages are messed up. Actually, it doesn't. You're in good shape. Listen to this. Listen to this character of our God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says he, this is the speaking of the Father. The Father predestined us for adoption. He predestined us, a bunch of mutts, a bunch of bloody, non-umbilical cord cut mutts, forgotten, fatherless, without protection and without provision. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved, that Beloved being Christ. This has been His plan from the beginning. This sermon isn't just about somebody getting some money together to go get a little baby. This sermon is about this spiritual reality that if you're in faith and fellowship with the Lord through the finished work of Christ, this is our story. We're all a bunch of orphans. And it's been predestined before you ever took breath, before you ever did anything good or bad that God predestined you and ordained you for adoption. A bunch of bloody mutts. Nothing illustrates the gospel better than marriage, the relationship between Christ and the church, and adoption. God adopting an unworthy, forgotten, fatherless people. And in these words that Jesus uses with his disciples in the hours before he goes to the cross, we see a picture that God loves children and especially orphan children because they illustrate us. They are a walking visual of us. And what we hopefully do with them by engaging them and tending to them is just putting the gospel on display. It's just putting on display what God has done with us. He has a special affection for children and orphans because he has a special affection and a special goal to put his ministry of adoption toward us on display in the work of salvation. Second thing I want you to understand from this context is that God's motive for this work is love and glory, not need. It's love and glory, not need. Go back to John, John chapter 14. I'm going to read a passage to you that's going to be familiar, and I'm going to reintroduce a word that you may remember. Some of you may be hearing it for the first time. It's a Greek word. It's a good one, man. Good Greek word. Chapter 14, verse 7. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. And Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. What's the guy's name on SpongeBob? The, the little... Pe- what, what, Luke, what's his name? The little dude? Patrick. He talks like Patrick. Philip does. Mm, just show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, listen to what he says. 
Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Here's why. How can you say, show us the Father? Here's why. Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? They are indwelling each other. That's why you can look at Jesus and see the Father. Because they are indwelling each other. The words that Jesus is saying, he's not speaking on his own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. He's speaking of this thing that we identified a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago by now. This weird Greek word called perichoresis. It's a Greek word that means the dance of God. Peri, like a perimeter. Choresis is where we get choreography from. The dance of God is what our early church fathers called this, where Father and Son and Spirit are indwelling each other, interpenetrating each other's lives, where it's like this dance, this blur, where you see creation, for example, this creative work and this blur where you're going, well, who created? And you go, yes. Was it the Father? Yes. Was it the Son? Yes. Was it the Holy Spirit? Uh Uh-huh. Well, who did what? I don't know. It was just a blur. And it's awesome and it's beautiful. It's because they interpenetrate and interdwell and interinvolved in each other's lives. That's what's being spoken about right here in John chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. It's writing about the dance of God. It's indwelling, interinvolvement. And what's going on there, you need to understand, is perfect contentment in the triune God. What's going on right there is this perfectly content God, Father, Son, and Spirit. They already have community. Before creation week ever began, community already was. And Father and Son and Spirit were already inter-involved and interpenetrated in each other's lives. And they're perfectly content and they're perfectly satisfied in and of themselves. They didn't create us out of a need. Acts chapter 17, the famous sermon that Paul preaches at the Areopagus. Paul says, God is not contained in buildings made by human hands as if he needed anything. He did not create us because he needed us, and he's not adopting us because he needs a baby. He doesn't need us. He's already perfectly satisfied in and of himself. You may remember the baptism where Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist where the Spirit descends like a dove and the Father speaks. And you may remember the words that he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He doesn't say in whom I'm sort of satisfied, but I need to go get some more adopted sons and daughters to really be satisfied. At the transfiguration, it's the same thing. At the transfiguration, he says the same thing. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, I'm satisfied. I'm content right here. That's all I need right there is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the crazy scandal of this story of adoption is that it's out of this satisfied oneness, out of this beautiful blur of oneness comes a surprising otherness. Out of this perichoretic blur reaches this big hand of God outward and actually downward to grab the likes of you and me. That's the scandal of adoption. He doesn't do it out of need. He does it out of love and glory. That's the motive for adoption. The big hand of God reaching downward for the childlike, for the fatherless, for the bloody, and for the forgotten. 
You may remember from John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I'm not praying for these only that are sitting here in this room, this 11, but I'm also praying for the future ones that will follow me and believe on my name. I pray that they will be one as you and I are one. He's praying, Father, reach down and grab them and pull them into the dance. Pull a bunch of bloody, forgotten, fatherless people into the dance. And why is he going to do that? So his grace and his mercy will be on display. That's why he did it with these Israel. That's why he drew them out of Egypt, out of the darkness of Egypt. 400 years of slavery. And he says it over and over again, if you read that Exodus story, so that they may know that I am the Lord. That's why God does this. It's not based on need. It's based on glory. And it's based on love. And he's doing this with a new Israel. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. He's doing this right now with a new Israel. You saw two pictures of it this morning. I hope you resonated with what took place up here this morning. Listen to this story, or this, these words from Ephesians chapter 2, page 976. We're going to import Exodus 16 into, or Ezekiel 16 into this. Listen to this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a bloody, forgotten child. You had no daddy. Nobody rubbed you with salt. Nobody put swaddling clothes on you. Nobody even cut your umbilical cord. You were forgotten. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, hear it, children of wrath. Ezekiel 16. We were toast. Baking out in a field. You think a baby that's been delivered in a bathroom has no hope? Imagine this out in the field, a baby just thrown out in the field. That was you. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind, that was us. But these sweetest two words in our Bible, but God reaches out of the perichoretic dance, but God being rich, and what is he rich in? He's rich in mercy because of the great love. That's the motive for which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, laying out there on the field baking, he made us alive together with Christ. And why did he do this? By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, this is why, in the coming ages, in 2009, on July the 12th, that we would sit in Greenville, Texas, on the south side of town, and that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why he did that. You see that? Man, that's beautiful. Adoption, putting this story on display. Those who are involved in the ministry of adoption reflect the character of God by giving room for the indwelling and interpenetration of someone in our already satisfied lives. That's key. You want to go get a baby to make you happy? Go get a pet. That's not the motive for adoption. God didn't do it because he needed it. He did it out of love and glory. Those who are involved in the ministry of adoption are escorting another into their lives as God has escorted and actually dragged us 
into the triune dance. That's a scandal. And we do this out of love, not need for a baby. The third thing, the cost of this adoption, our adoption, is very great. Very great. Consider the context of this promise. I'll not leave you as orphans hours before he's nailed to a cross. The cost of our adoption is very great. One of the most expensive places in the world to adopt right now is Kazakhstan. The two families that have adopted from there. I got the latest stats from one of those families. Forty-eight to fifty-two thousand dollars. And two to three months in country. So think about two to three months too. Husband and wife in country. So take whatever you make during that period and take that off the table too. Because you've got to take a leave of absence if you even have your job when you get back. Forty-eight dollars to $52,000, two to three months of your time, your life, living in country. That's a long taxing stretch, as you might imagine. Mentally, spiritually, and financially. That's a serious stretch. I spent 10 days, 14 days, like, something like that in Kazakhstan. I was ready to come home, man. We ate horse meat. And man, something about eating trigger just did not set with me. So I don't think for three months that Aaron, Stephanie, or Mike and Abby ate horse meat. But imagine three months being out of your comfort zone. Three months being in a foreign land with a different language, a different culture to adopt the fatherless. That's why you're there. To adopt the fatherless. Now consider this. Imagine if you had to set aside complete and perfect fellowship with your loved ones to go do that. Imagine if you had this most amazing family that's ever existed. Now, I know that Aaron and Stephanie are close with both sets of their parents, but just imagine that they, for example, are going back to Kazakhstan and that they have the most amazing relationship with their family that's ever existed Imagine that you have to leave them, not for a month, but for 33 years. 33. In fact, let's go and make it your whole lifetime. You have to leave and surrender your entire physical lifetime. Of course, you can still correspond, but you're not elbow to elbow like you used to be. You're giving something up. You're apart for 33 years, and in that 33 years, you cannot do a single thing wrong in Kazakhstan. Not a single thing. Anybody that's ever been to Kazakhstan knows that if you get in a car, that's impossible because everybody breaks a law in the car because there is no law. It's just all wrong. It's crazy. But imagine that you have to take your entire life and surrender it and you go step into Kazakhstan for 33 years and you can't do a single thing wrong and adding to that, their leader comes to you and tries to tempt you with everything wrong that Kazakhstan has to offer trying to trip you up. But if you misstep just once, the adoption is off. Sorry, life wasted. Then while you're in Kazakhstan, a group of people conspire to have you tried illegally. And then you're found guilty of nothing and murdered publicly to adopt a baby. And while all this is going on, the family that you left, remember that perfect fellowship that you left? Remember them? 
As part of the adoption, this perfectly content, happy family that you departed 33 years ago has to forsake you for the adoption to go through. Your father has to turn his back on you. And all of this for a homely baby. All of this for an ugly baby. We're not even talking a beautiful baby. We're talking about a little dog, ugly thing. Romans 3 says that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. If it was a thousand babies, spiritually, together we're worthless. No one does good, not even one. This baby that he's adopted is homely. This proves that he has indeed chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. share a couple of passages with you. I just want you to listen to these. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Listen. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, sitting at the Father's right hand, elbow to elbow, enjoying perfect fellowship with his Father, yet for your sake, an ugly baby, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the scandal of adoption. Man, it's crazy. I'll tell you something else that's crazy, and here's how expensive it was. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood. That's what it costs. It costs 48000 to 52000 for Kazakhstan. It costs blood for our adoption. Blood. Your very life. In fact, his very life. If adoption, physical adoption that we participate in today does what marriage does for the gospel, if it's to put the gospel on display, it better be expensive. It better cramp us. It better cost us something as we put the gospel on display. What a crazy, crazy scandal. Adoption. God loves the little children and especially orphan children. God's motive for this work is love and glory, not need, and the cost of our adoption is very great. What are we to do to do with this? Is it just kind of some notions that we go, okay, that's cool? Or do we actually walk out and do something in this? I'm going to offer two things. First of all, that we see ourselves as orphans and that we enjoyify adoption. That's a new word that I've made up. It's not new for us, but it's a word I made up, and I'm putting the circle C behind it. That's a good word. Glorify. We're glorifying God when we're enjoying Him. So we're going to enjoyify Him in the work of adoption. You're really getting somewhere when you see yourself relative God as a dirty, destitute, helpless, bloody, fatherless child with no hope for life apart from Him. There's treasures in store. In fact, it's the same treasures that were in store for Jeremy Kieschnick when he spent nine weeks Eating, he stinketh. It's the same treasure. You realize, oh man, this gospel is a scandal. You must see yourselves as taken in by a family that was quite complete. And in fact, in actuality, is perfectly complete, complete in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfectly satisfied without you, but as an act of love and mercy and grace and glory, reaching out actually downward and rescuing the likes of you and me. 
cleaning us up and seating us at the table like a man named Mephibosheth. I'm going to read Mephibosheth's story. Just listen to this. If you want to read it later, you can jot this passage down. But I want you to just listen to this amazing story. Saul was the first king of Israel. David was the second. You might know the story, how that transpired. Saul kind of went haywire. Saul had a son named Jonathan that was real close with David. Man, they were the closest friends. Saul and Jonathan died in battle. David is made king. David is a serious warrior, kicking some serious behind. Whenever he becomes king, man, he's just whipping people all over the place. And he's making things right. He's going to get the Ark of the Covenant and bring him back to Jerusalem. David is setting right all these things that have kind of come unglued through Saul. And in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel is where he kind of has a chance to exhale and kind of, all right, let me kind of assess what's taking place and let me think about what I might do. Listen to what he says. And David said, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, yeah. I'm Zeba. I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Zeba said to the king, Oh, yeah. There's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. Remember, his daddy's dead. This is a story of a fatherless, an orphan who's lost protection and provision. The reason he's lost protection and provision is because when an old regime was replaced with a new family line, the old family weren't like made pals of the kingdom. They were murdered for fear that they might create an uprising and try and get the reign back. The norm for the old family was to kill every last one of them. He is, in fact, fatherless. He's protectionless. Not a word, but we'll use it. And he has no provision. He's an example of what we're talking about. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of David? Ziba said, oh, there's Jonathan. He's crippled in both his feet. That's a great image. He's crippled. And the king said to him, well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Maker and the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the fatherless, the orphan with no provision and no protection, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, calls him by name. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. I'm not going to kill you like I ought to. I'm not going to kill you like the norm. I'm not going to kill you like you deserve by relationship to your granddaddy. Here, Adam. I'm not going to kill you, for I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore you to the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should regard, show regard for a dead dog such as I? You hear that heart, man? That's a heart of worship right there. That's the treasure of he stinketh. That's the treasure of recognizing our need for a Savior. What in the world are you doing showing regard for a dead dog such as I? 
And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his, all his house I've given to your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 27 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Scandal? And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And in case you forgot, now he was lame in both of his feet. What a great image. A crippled, fatherless, dead dog. A crippled orphan with no provision and no protection, deserving death, is not only spared, but is raised together with Christ and seated with Christ. Do you hear Ephesians 2 right here? Not only is he not spared, or not only is he spared, but he is seated in a place of honor? That's a scandal. This is our story, and there is treasure in seeing yourself like Mephibosheth saw himself, a crippled, dead dog. A few treasures in store if you see yourself there. I can tell you this, you never have to beg a Mephibosheth to come to the table. He's... Mephibosheth, you know, David has invited you to the table. You know, you need to come, you know, come on. Oh, I got a busy schedule, you know. I went shopping yesterday and, whoo, I'm tired or I'm feeling, I got the snivels. You can't keep Mephibosheth from the table. Crippled as he is, he would take on wild Indians to get to this table. If you see yourself as a Mephibosheth, wild horses couldn't keep you from the table. Another treat of seeing yourself as him is you'll never get caught up in the thought that's self-centered, that it's all about me. Could you imagine Mephibosheth sitting around the table saying, man, it's all about me? He's sitting there gawking, amazed by the reality that he's sitting at the table of the king. He's not even mindful of himself. He's not even thinking about himself. He's shocked that he was even invited. A Mephibosheth will never get caught up in thinking about what he thinks he's owed. He lives in humility because he knows that it's an indescribable, scandalous mercy that he's not dead. And an even greater grace that he's sitting with the king. You can't hurt Mephibosheth's feelings. He's too amazed to be sitting at the table of the king. He shuffles in with his little old crippled feet because he knows it's a crazy scandal that he's invited and I want you to know that there are treasures in seeing yourself as this crippled Mephibosheth. Because he represents our reality. The second thing you can do is worship through the ministry of adoption. By actually adopting. John chapter 13 verse 15. Remember it. I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. If he's adopted us, then somebody better be about this work. The church better be about this work of doing just as he has done for us. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The church has got to be about this work that's done toward us. 
It's simply responding in obedience. James says, he says, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit. That word visit means to tend to orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Adoption is religion at its best. Contrary to what some people might say, we don't need less religion. We need pure and undefiled religion that's doing toward others what God has done toward us, just responding to what's been done toward us. We put the gospel on display as we let someone else indwell our busy, expensive lives. We're giving them a place to dwell in our lives as God has given us a place to dwell in His, that perichoretic dance. So adopting, man, that's one thing we can do. The other thing we can do is being part of the process. Money should never keep the people of God from adopting. If any family among the people of God are called to adopt, they ought to have the resources. Money should never keep the people of God from adopting. If the Hamiltons or the Roddens or the Kimblers or any other family are being called to adopt, then we're all walking in that with them. They may not be in a room in our house, but if baby dedication is what we say it is, then we're pregnant. You understand what I'm saying? That's our baby we're talking about. This is our call. If any of these families are called to do this, that together we have the resources to walk in what God's called them to because he's called us to it. Yesterday was a great example of the corporate response to a specific call. The Hamiltons, Steve shared with you some of that story. Process for adoption began a few months ago along with a couple other families, the Roddens, for example. This journey of adoption and getting in the initial paperwork and the initial assessments and putting together kind of a packet to present to a prospective mom. And they got news a couple weeks ago that they got a baby on the way and a mom who's looking at your packet, who's kind of targeting you. (laughs) And it looks like you may have a baby in the next couple weeks. They had no resources for it a couple of months ago, but they had a big burden for it. And then last week they're informed that, oh, you're pregnant and you're about to have a baby. They needed $14,000 to see this thing through. Before the weekend, before this weekend, they had six. As of yesterday, they got another 4400 It would not surprise me if by the end of corporate worship today they had the balance. That's appropriate for the people of God. That's what it's all about. That's the way it's supposed to be. I want to encourage you that if you're not adopting, you need to recognize that we're still part of the process and part of this ministry, all of us, because it takes all of us to do this. There's a future ministry that's budding. We don't know what it looks like. We've got Aaron as a deacon and some of the other guys that are kind of brainstorming and praying and the elders are praying and brainstorming and trying to figure out what does this look like? I don't know what it looks like. It's not going to become the thing. What will remain the thing is worship. But an offspring, an offshoot of worship will be sweet marriages and real adoptions. It's got to be because it's the gospel in motion. And the reality is we can worship through this. We worship in and through the ministry of adoption. Let me pray.
Lord, we are thankful for this imagery of adoption and these uh, realities that you've painted for us, these things that you have already done in the life of Israel, the things that you are doing in the life of a new Israel. We're thankful for even the specific examples of Joshua and Jeremy this morning. Lord, we pray for lots of specific examples of new life and new adoptions. Lord, all the while we want to walk in those images. We want to walk in sweet marriages because what they put on display, the relationship between Christ and the church. And we want to walk in real, tangible, expensive, difficult, hard adoptions of children, orphans, fatherless. Lord, we don't know what this looks like, but we want to walk in obedience. We pray that you'll just show us the next few steps and that you'll find us stepping out in those next few steps. We are so thankful for your provision. We confess and recognize that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. And if you've called us to something, that you will provide the resources. And we are so grateful that you just continue to do that over and over and over again. Lord, we are so thankful for the finished work of adoption through the cross of Christ in the empty tomb. We're amazed by it. We see it as a sweet, sweet scandal. I pray that as a result of our time together in the Word today, that we can see ourselves as a bunch of, a gathering of Mephibosheths, crippled feet, humble, lowly, impossible to make mad, really having a, just a low view of ourselves, shocked by the reality that we're seated at the table of the King. Lord, we want to respond this morning with worship and song. We pray these things in Christ's good name. Amen. Let's worship and song.